five, three, two, three, two, okay. one, on. All right, so welcome to Peggy's Recovery Corner. I am here today with my friend Maggie, I'll call you now, even though I've called you Margie all these years. Uh, welcome to the corner. Thank you for being on the show today. Thank you so much, Peggy. It's an honor to be here. Thank you. You know, I think I've, I I met you probably, I would say uh, maybe five, six years ago, maybe a little bit more. Um, I know one thing, I've been sober 14 years, and when I started working in the field of addiction and alcoholism, I noticed that there was this, uh, this a lot of overdoses. A lot of people were, were uh, a lot of parents were suffering because their, their kids were suffering, and then there was overdoses and there was death. I caught wind of you first. I don't remember who it was from or, or how it was, but I do remember that you had lost your son. You want to talk about that a little bit uh, and who, who you are? Absolutely. Um, um, I'll start with myself. Um, so I'm, you know, as you said, I'm, I'm Maggie and I know you've known me for Mar as Margie for many years, but um, that's, it's actually part of my uh, grief recovery journey is sort of why my name has changed slightly. Uh, but um, I'm a mother of four sons and uh, I, uh, our family was, you know, struck with a, the tragedy of losing a child to uh, substance use disorder back in 2010. Um, I, you know, I raised all four sons, you know, pretty much the same way. But as we know, everyone is a unique individual. Uh, and, you know, every, every, every person has their own, you know, challenges and struggles. And I always noticed at such a, at a very young age that Mitchell um, always seemed uncomfortable in his skin. Uh, he had a lot of anxiety. He was super shy and uh, a lot of, you know, just insecurities. Always had to be, always had to see see me know where I was in a room kind of thing. His dad as well. And um, um, as uh, as he grew up, well, he was, he was a hockey player. Let me just first say that. He was a hockey player. He he loved hockey from a very early age, and he actually got the neighborhood kids and his own brothers, uh, you know, interested. And um, they he was sort of the follower. He was sort of the leader in that in that way in the neighborhood. Um, everybody knew him um, in that way. Um, he played hockey over the years. Was his you know number one love. It was the one thing that he did connect with. It that kind of brought him out. Um, through high school, however, uh, I don't really think he fit in. He didn't really identify with the athletes. Uh, he didn't, you know, he didn't really know where to fit in. And he, I think he just was drawn by other people that seemed sad or kind of depressed and lost, you know, kind of the lost crowd. And where were um, you living during that time? Was this, were you in South Orange County or just in Orange County or where? Uh, yes, we were in, we were in South Orange County. Um, uh, Mitchell and uh, uh, three of my children were born in Northern California. I'm originally from Northern California. Okay. And that's where I grew up um, in the Silicon Valley area. And we moved here in 1995 and, you know, Mitch was only seven years old at the time. Um, and as he progressed um, in high school, um, he was, ho he was hoping that he could play hockey uh, while like on, on a high school team. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, he, he made the team, but unfortunately, the school was worried about some lawsuits or something that was going on. So they disbanded the whole thing. And that kind of that's when I kind of really feel like he he uh, he didn't uh, connect with the people in general in high school. Um, he struggled through high school. He got through high school, but he struggled through school as far as his grades went. You know, he barely got by. Um, he had a very sweet disposition. He was, he was very kind, very sweet. Um, what I've been able to uh, track or trace from talking to other people is in his sophomore year, he was introduced to uh, prescription pain meds and he hit it very well. He hit it very well. How was, uh, he, how was he introduced to those prescription pain, pain meds? Was um, it through friends, yeah, through uh, friends, uh, 
you know, this is what I've been told. Um, and um, he he managed to sail or just kind of get by. He we noticed uh, he was, you know, he seemed very depressed. Um, they're looking back now. We missed a lot. We didn't know. We didn't know anything about substance use disorders. We didn't know anything about the signs of it. And we were finding things and clues, not knowing that that's what that was. Like what kind of clues? So um, missing, our spoons would be missing. Okay. Uh, um, foil, foil right. would be missing. These are typical, um, typical things that kids that are doing heroin use. Yes. Yeah. And so when I would question him, uh, he would he would be very convincing, you know, like why why um why don't you bring your dirty spoons downstairs, you know, uh, from you know like whatever you were eating in your room or whatever, um, why was the foil in your in your room or et cetera? And he always seemed to have, you know, sort of logical answers. So you know we he did fool us a lot. Um, we just we had no clue. We were very naive and just really didn't know. Um, and so we would notice that he he would wear sweatshirts a lot and wear his hoodie, wear the hood over his head a lot. Right. And I and I always felt it was an anxiety thing uh, because he it seemed like he didn't he he had very low self esteem and he didn't like it if you looked at him. So I always felt it was his way of trying to shut out the world and just like cover his face. Mm -hmm. And, um, but he and I were, he and I were very close. We had a bond. He, I understood him. I knew not to press him on certain things that would make him more uncomfortable, such as taking his picture. He was, he had a lot of anxiety about taking his picture. So mm -hmm. I wouldn't force it, you know, and I sort of respected that part of him, but it wasn't until, um, about, uh, he graduated from high school and he actually was, he held down jobs. He went to Saddleback College a little bit here and there. He had a, a interest for um, uh, auto mechanics. Um, but at age 20 is when um, we learned he had been arrested and he had been charged with you know, drug paraphernalia. And that's when we learned that he had a heroin addiction. Okay. Was, so so I want to ask you some questions, and I know it's a, I know it's a sensitive subject. It's so delicate. I mean, I, I, it's there's a lot of realities to this. Yes. Um, I want to back up real quick to where you said um, it started with prescription medication. So obviously, when you said it was from friends, I mean, in in my world, I call those so-called friends. Like they're not really friends. You know what I mean? Exactly. But they they as much as he were probably caught up in that that scene. Um, it's a very popular thing amongst the youth these days. They they get into opiates, usually through pills. It's not like kids just pick up heroin for the first time and be like, oh, I'm just going to become addicted to heroin. Like it, it can definitely develop and uh, through through prescription medications, which are probably not prescribed to the majority of the teens that are out there. Maybe like a small percentage of them are, are using prescription medication because of actual pains that they may have endured like a exactly. back injury or something like that. But for the most part, do you think, or do you know, I mean, I'm sure after uh, over the years, you probably racked your brain to try to figure out like where it all started from. But do you think that these kids were getting this stuff perhaps like from grandma's medicine cabinet or their own parents' medicine cabinets or how the hell were these mm -hmm. kids getting this stuff? Yes, I do. Uh, that's a, that is a, a fact, but I do believe that that is what you know they were doing, going through cabinets. Uh, that re you got to remember, this was in you know roughly like two, th you know, uh, in the early two thousands, uh, two thousand, you know, two two thousand three, whatever. And, that, and that's when the oxys were were out there, like the yes. oxys. Yes, yeah. and so. Um, People hadn't caught on yet that they need they shouldn't have these things in their medicine cabinets. That that they they parents weren't they just weren't uh, clued in that that could possibly be happening in their homes. Now I don't know exactly where he obtained it because uh, both my husband and I we did not we weren't taking those 
medications. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think that they were at other people's homes and they mm -hmm. did, they did get into them that way. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, you know, and perhaps he was getting things off the street because, um, you know, uh, with addiction comes desperation. Right. And right. a lot, you know, and a lot of people, they, you know, they end up stealing from their own families, you know. Right. And, so, and, that, and that usually happens with, well, you know, I think at first it starts out in a very premature cycle where the kids will hit their own home's medicine cabinets, but then they will move on to other places. Like if they're ba like the girlfriend's babysitter or something, is it somehow, or wherever it can be, it can be breaking into places. And, and when you can't actually get the prescription medications, then they resort to uh, the harder stuff, the street drugs, especially in California, there's the black tar heroin. And so, um, so when you said that you were finding spoons missing or, or uh, mm -hmm. even tinfoil. I mean, this is a very common thing that a lot of kids go after is the spoon to try to heat up the drugs or to uh, yes. the, 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 the tinfoil. When you were finding these things, did you have any clue? Like, were you, did, did you know, but you didn't want to know, or did you know anything at all? Or had you no idea? I was like, was his appearance, did, his, did he appear like he was under the influence of opiates? So, um, so I, I, I was very clueless. I didn't know anything about those, you know, those could be signs. Um, um, now I can look back and say, oh yes, his color was off. Um, he, he seemed to be sleepy a lot. I could, I could tell you a million things that I know now that right. were signs mm -hmm. that I couldn't understand this behavior at the time, you know? Um, and so it was, a, it was a definite education. And of course, uh, you know, after everything that's happened, you know, you can't help but feel like it, you know, if you wouldn't have missed this, wouldn't, you know, if you would have known more about this, but, you know, I can't play that game with myself because yeah, I, yeah. I've know I know too many parents that knew those things and it, right. and did they had the similar results. Right. My, definitely. My mom was probably one of them. I mean, yes. uh, the writing was on the wall, but her being a mother, like a Persian mother, highly codependent with yes. not armed with any facts of recovery for her community until like the, it was it was evident. But she, I think, in her own mind, did not want to believe that I was a phone blown addict. And although she mm -hmm. knew I mean, she knew that I was bad. She just didn't know how bad I was, even with all yeah. of their tests and everything. So, so that let's catch up now to what you were just talking about. So, so this young man graduated high. Amazing that he graduated high school. I mean, that, that's great. You know, obviously he must have been uh, very smart and educated to be able to do that, even if he was under the influence of anything. So, well, then he got in trouble with the law. You say, and how old was he then? So it it was two years after he graduated from high school. Uh, we were on a I was on, I was in Lake Tahoe with my other sons and I got a call from my husband who had stayed behind with me, with Mitch in the house and mm -hmm. said that he had been arrested. Uh, and he was in possession of black tar heroin. And I, you know, I didn't honestly didn't know what that was, you know? Um, so that was an education. Um, and, um, so that started that, that was the whole, um, that was the day my whole life changed. Like I didn't know who I could talk to about that. I had no one. Um, and it was a really lonely place to be. And especially since Mitch was ashamed of everything. And he said, please don't talk to your friends, please, you know, don't talk about this. Don't tell grandma, don't tell my aunts and et cetera, et cetera. And so, um, I, I, obliged him but um you know looking back um that that was not a good thing for me to do because then i was in a lonely place i i didn't open up and i if you don't open up you can't find support or you don't get any support because no one knows what you're going through right and, and so that's uh that's that was a lonely place for me to be and he literally uh, okay so for the next two years um he spent his life in and out of jail, in and out of jail, in and out of jail, Theo Lacey, and um, here in Orange County. And 
uh, the very last year of his life, the entire last year of his life, he was incarcerated. Was, and, he getting, was he getting incarcerated because of possession, because of sales, because of uh, what, what was he getting in trouble for? Um, so, you know, uh, at first it was, you know, because he was a D, it was a DUI, you know, he was under the influence. Right. But then, but then after that, it was, it was, uh, at, at one point we had to, we had to do, you know, the tough love that is very controversial and we didn't know what we were doing and we had to have him leave because um there he had there had been some episodes in our home that we found that it was impossible to have him living there anymore right so so the night that we made him leave he managed to uh end up at a someone's home with a group of people and um you know he got into their medicine cabinet and uh somehow he found himself, he got himself arrested that very first night that we tossed, tossed him out. Right. And, um, and while he was incarcerated, um, he, that's when they started thinking that maybe he, he had a dual diagnosis problem, that there was, you know, uh, some sort of mental health diagnosis, uh, in addition. Uh -huh. Um, and so, um, they gave him, they gave him a, a they gave him a whole um, evaluation while he was in jail, and you know they did diagnose him with bipolar. He had severe anxiety and depression. Mm -hmm. They gave him a, they actually took him out of jail for a while, put him in a collaborative court a program called Whatever It Takes mm -hmm. or the WIT the WIT program. Right. Um. He, and he did really really well with that until uh, one night he for about five weeks he was doing great. He was like he was exemplary in the program. Um, I felt like I was getting my son back, literally. And uh, but he he met a, he met a, an older woman while he was in the program, and together they violated curfew. And um, when they violated curfew, um, he uh, he picked up another charge, and this time it was a it was a violent fel felony. Mm -hmm. And so that really, you know, that blew his chances of remaining in that program. They didn't give any him another chance. So. So literally the last year of his life, he spent incarcerated while they were going to decide if he was maybe going to be sent off to prison for five years. Wow. Yeah. So I didn't for, know all that had happened to him. Yeah. So, so did, did he never get a chance to be rehabilitated and except for the WIT program? Like, was there ever any treatment or rehab that he was ever even introduced to? So, um, I, so th this is the really, this is a very sad part of the story is mm -hmm. while he, while he was incarcerated, no, the answer to your question is no, but, uh, uh, he eventually, uh, was that charge was uh, reduced and he would be on a five-year formal probation. He was going to be, you know, released. And so, um, I said to him, okay, you can't come, come you can't because by then you know i was starting to learn i was learning more and i said okay you can't come home and do the same things you've been doing and you know it, it's not going to work um and so if you want to earn your way back home you know you need to go into a program again i was naive i didn't know that um you know people can go to multiple programs for years and and keep needing to go you know i i was so naive i just thought okay he'll go to this one program he'll be great and then he'll get on with his life that's really what i thought so right. um so we had uh i made arrangements for him he was actually supposed to go into a program the day that he got out the program uh was in culver is in culver city and they were they you know we had all this arranged mitch was in agreement the day he came out everything went south everything so they said we can't see him today so uh, they put him off for four days and i said well what am i supposed to do how you know how what am i supposed to do for four days so you can see him and they said oh don't worry you know he'll be fine they they didn't give me any more information they just assumed that i knew things that i should have known that i i didn't um such as such as tolerance levels like watch him because he knows he's going to into a program, so maybe he's going to want to do a last hurrah. These are things that they should have told me as a family member. Right. So, 
anyway, so for four days he was with me. He had no phone, he had no car. If I left the house, he went with me. We were making plans. Um, he, he was, he seemed like, he seemed very excited to be getting out of Orange County and he, he was very willing. He was a very will, he had a willingness about him to do this. Um, so, uh, on day four, they said, okay, we can assess your son. So I drove him up to Culver city. They gave him a four hour assessment and, and for the life of me, I don't know why, but they, um, they said, okay, we'll take your son, but we can't, we can't, um, we can't take him till tomorrow. Now I know a little bit more than I did then. And I, that's unheard of, uh, you know, he's so close and yet they send him, send him home. And not only did they send him home for one more night, but they sent me home really with no information, nothing. They, they didn't say, okay, you get, you got to watch him really closely. Uh, they didn't say, Hey, did you know, do you know the signs of an overdose for an opiate? If you see this, this is what you need to do. They, mm -hmm. they said nothing to me. They just said, see ya, come back tomorrow. So we went home and um, long story short, he was able to connect on social media, uh, you know, without us realizing it. He got on our lap, he got on our desktop computer at home um, and someone dropped off black tar heroin in our yard and uh, he didn't have any money. And so we were able to figure out, I had just filled some prescriptions for him for his anxiety and depression and, and both prescriptions were halfway gone. They could, you know, so, the police said, oh, he, you know, he most likely traded them, you know, for the black tar heroin. So anyway, um, so that night he, he did use a small amount and I questioned him because I saw, I saw not him nodding off. And I said, what, you know, what happened? What, what did you take? And he wouldn't be honest with me. He was very belligerent, very combative, disrespectful. And um, I, I didn't, stop to think that oh well you know maybe he has maybe he's not done maybe he has more i didn't i didn't even think about that honestly and i just figured we would put this behind us and we would uh proceed in the in the, the next morning with taking him to the program i said to him you know i'll see you in the morning let's just move forward let's put this behind us and that was that um Little did I know that would be my last conversation with him. Um, and the next morning, um, at six o'clock in the morning, I heard a TV on and I went downstairs and um, I found my son, I found Mitchell. And um, it was the most shocking, most devastating moment, you know, in my life. And the way, the best way I can describe it, Pej, is that a bomb went off in my house but it was a silent bomb. Nobody else could hear it, but it was deafening. It was deafening and devastating. Uh, my, I had all my other boys, they were 12 and 15 and 18, and they were all asleep. And uh, my husband was getting ready for work. I had, I had to calmly go run upstairs, get him, tell him there was a problem and that he needed to come help me. Um, Parents should never have to, parents, siblings, anyone should never have to come across this scene of having to lay your son on the floor and attempt CPR while you're calling 911. My home quickly filled up with first responders, police who want to treat it as a crime scene, which is devastating to the families, uh, you know, paramedics, uh, trauma intervention volunteers, you know, uh, eventually the coroner. Um, so we had to make the decision to wake up our boys and put them all in a room together and deliver this news because it was early in the morning. Our house was filling up and we didn't want them to come downstairs and wonder what the hell is going on. We didn't want them to just come across it. So we had to wake them up. And, um, you know, it's a moment, it's a moment that they will never forget that they are never the same because of it, uh, that parents should never have to do. Um, yeah.
I'm trying to hold it together. I mean, that that's heart wrenching. I just can't poop. I can't imagine. I mean, I can't imagine because I've had to deal with it on my end too, but not when it's your kid. No, yeah. I don't. Have, I don't have my own children, so I would never know. But yeah, that's it's very, tough. very, very heavy. And so, uh, so he was the oldest of all the brothers. He is the oldest, yes. And so, it's it's very tough on them uh, because. Leading up to that moment, they had distanced themselves from their brother because they didn't understand what was going on with him. They didn't know why he was doing what he was doing, behaving the way he was behaving. Uh, they, you know, they were young. They couldn't, they couldn't get it. Uh, we, we could barely get it. We, you know, and so, um, so it's tough on them um, because, you know, after the fact, you wish you would have, you know, tried tried harder tried to have more of a relationship with that person seeing what you know see what you could have said or done or you know all the what ofs the you know the wishes everything and the the kids you know the siblings are left with those feelings too and it's it's tough because it's not their fault and there's nothing they could have done but they will always wonder well what if i would have tried to talk to him more what if you know what if i would have said this to him let him know that i care you know and it's not that they didn't, but they were scared of him. They, they, they were confused by him, you know? So I totally get that too. And often, you know, I, I often, obviously we know that the, the fentanyl craze and the car, car fentanyl craze is, is running rampant. And we just see a lot of people that are losing their lives as a result of it. Um, I often will look at my Facebook page and see, you know, I'm in the recovery world. So I have a lot of friends that are in the recovery world and they'll say gone too soon and you'll see the person's pictures and they'll, yeah. they'll and um, I tend to wonder, so, so what do we say to our friends that are on these drugs? Do we turn a blind eye? Do we tell them the, the truth? Can we just be straightforward with them? Can we let them know? I know one thing based off of my own experience when I was on heavy, heavy, heavy drugs, um, I was on a death mission. Like I didn't care if I died and I would often have friends, especially towards the end of before I got sober that would tell me, Paige, like you go hard. Like you gotta be careful, man. The way you're going, you're gonna die. And I'd look at him like straight up and say, I don't fucking care. Like I don't, good. Right. I'll, I'll do more so I can die. Cause, cause I really wasn't living. I didn't know how to live. I was a right. drug addict, drug fiend, dope fiend, all that stuff. So. Right. Um, so, you know, it, it's about trying to help our friends get out of that mindset. And and so mm -hmm. uh, I love, first of all, I love you. Uh, you're, you've been such a dear a dear lady that whenever I inter interact with you, I'm, I'm reminded of why uh, why you matter to me so much. And you know why you matter to me is because 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 uh, you stand out. You've, you've gone above and beyond to continue to help people that are in the process of trying to get their kid back or have actually lost their loved one or their child. So over the years, you know, what I learned about you was that you created a nonprofit organization, which is it's written right behind you. It's Solace for Hope. And I, and I want you to know, one of the reasons I say I love you is because I know I can always count on you. Whenever uh, I've, and this is on a national level, I've had a lot of different mothers or fathers that have called me and they've lost their loved one. And um, and I often will tell them, call call Maggie, call Margie, call Margie because she yeah. has experience with this. She lost her son. She helps a lot of people. Uh, Solace is is, a, is a, and I'll have you talk more about it. But I know when I know that somebody's grieving, and there's so many different stages of grieving from losing their loved one, um, I send them to you. You know, I, if they're yes. in Orange County, um, you're you know for a long time before the pandemic the doors were open and the seats were being filled and people would come down. I think if I'm not mistaken during pandemic, you were probably online. And, and then if mm -hmm. perhaps you've opened up again, but will you do me a favor and please tell us about the, the history of Solace, how it started, why mm -hmm. it started and what, what you've done with it and what it is now. Okay, sure. Absolutely. But really quick, I want to just quickly answer your question. Uh -huh. What, what do you say to a friend, to someone, um, well, first of all, you just you meet them where they're at. You let them know that that uh, you're not judging them, that you have compassion, that you know it's hard, that you know not to be struggling with this, 
and you just let them know that you're there. Uh, and so, you know, even if they're not ready for help, you just say, hey, you can come with, come to me anytime. And, you know, I will never enable you, but I will support you when you're ready, when you have that willingness. Always let them know that you love them unconditionally because the fact of the matter is we don't know if they're going to be here tomorrow. So don't go to bed without saying that you love them, that you care, that, I mean, it's very simple. It's very simple, you know. Um, and as far as, uh, so Solace for Hope started out, of, it started out at, um, in 2012 um, out of the need, you know, for families who were being impacted. And um, after I was impacted uh, in this, you know, devastating way, I, I was alone. I, uh, there was, there's so much stigma. It's just hard to talk to the average person about it. And I actually went to a support group for, um, that was being held in the city of Tustin for parents who'd lost a child under any circumstance. And um, it was a wonderful support group run by wonderful people. And I met lifelong friends. So I just want to say that. However, I felt at times when I would share that I lost my son to, to drugs, um, I felt the stigma. It was, it was even in a room with other parents who'd lost children in other ways. Um, and it was it was hard. It was hard to take. Um, you know, I would hear comments. Do you think sometimes people were kind of looking at you like like you weren't doing good parenting and, and you don't count here because uh, your your child lost their life because because you weren't able to prevent him from becoming a, a, an addict? Absolutely. It's it's all of that and more. It's um, it's oh, well, they chose that they chose that. Um, that oh well that's what you get that's what they get when they do that it was everything um i would even hear comments from parents like well my child was good they weren't a drug addict so that right away made me feel like okay i have a bad kid or what and no i know i don't i know these are not all bad kids they're all they're sensitive they're beautiful they're talented they have a lot to offer they have a lot of potential but for whatever reason a lot of them are born with some deep down internal pain and we don't even know it sometimes and sometimes you know we can put our fingers on it but um and so yeah so it was tough so i i stayed with that group because like i said i made lifelong beautiful friends in that group but um i started pulling away thinking like we need a safe non-judgmental you know compassionate place and so i um i knew the mayor in mission viejo in the city i was living at in the time at the time, she was a grandmother, and I knew that she would have a big heart for it. So I approached her and said, "Hey, this is what this is what happened to my family. This is what's happening to many families. We need a place where we can meet, where we can talk about it. What, what, whether it's someone struggling or whether we've lost someone, we need a place where no one's going to judge us." Mm-hmm. And she was right on board. Within within a week, she found a spot for me at the Norman Murray Community Center. And that has been a standing uh, lo- location, a standing spot for us since 2012. And it's amazing because the city renews the contract every year with me and there's no charge. So it's a true gift. It's a blessing, I, I would say. Um, and of course, the mayor is long gone as far as in her, you know her political career. She's retired, but that it's like it, we were grandfathered in and we're you know we're a, we're a main fixture there. Sadly, because of COVID, yes, the center actually is still closed. It, it's not going to reopen till I've heard Janu- January of 20, 2022. So we've been trying to make things work by meeting at members' homes who have graciously opened up their homes, meeting outdoors, um, and uh, we do weekly Zoom meetings. Uh, but um, in um, 2019, 2018, 2019, um, we connected with um, uh, a family who had been impacted, and they wanted to get involved, literally rolled up their sleeves and said, we want to help you. Um, and so the beautiful thing that came out of that, many beautiful things, but we, we did turn Solace into a nonprofit, which is something I always wanted to do, but I just needed, I was so busy supporting everybody. I really had no time to do the things that really needed to get done right. um, in addition. So 
um, and and through this family, um, uh, you know, they they helped us open up a second location in the city of Cyprus, which is where I'm coming coming to you from now. Okay. Um, and now uh, we also have a new location in the city of Covina, which we just met last night. Mm-hmm. Um, and we get requests all the time. You know, Riverside, San Diego County, people want uh, want another, you know, solace for hope there. And what makes us unique, Pej, is that um, it, we, you know, yes, we have a lot of grieving families, but we also have people that are struggling. But we opened it up to people in recovery. And that's our favorite part of it. That is our absolute favorite part of it. Because we could sit around the table and share all day about what's happened to us. And sadly, you know, there's a lot of similarities in our stories and we we all understand it. But to get the perspective of the families, for people in recovery to come in and sit across the table from us and say, wow, you you could be my mom in this room or you remind me of my dad. Mm-hmm. And we also have uh, siblings that come into the group that share about their loss, which is you know devastating. Um, we have, like I said, we have people from the recovery community, people from the drug court program are mandated to come and attend a Solace for Hope meeting. I have to sign off on their court cards and it's part of their requirement for a drug court graduation. Um, that's that is amazing. Yeah, and it, it's what it's because we we get so much out of people in recovery. We it helps us better understand, but we they hear from families things they didn't realize their families were going through along with them when they were going through their addiction. Um, and so it's sort of a symbiotic relationship, and uh, we give, we you know we we take, we you know give to each other. We love, we love on them. We literally love on them. We hug them. We uh, give them encouragement. We, many of them come back over and over and they want to check in with us. Hmm. And they, and they said our stories help them in their recovery to stay vigilant. I think that's amazing. You know, this, this brings up this thought of back in the day, I used to have this drinking buddy. He kept getting DUIs. And uh, he was in and out, like, even from his adolescence all the way into his young adulthood. And he ended up uh, having this judge down in Orange County who lost her son in a dr- drunk driving accident. So this was like the lady that would just hand out the consequences to all of the DUI folks, right? And yes. they, they would make him literally like one of the things that he had to do. He was at, he was down at James Music Jail, the, the farm. Yes. Right? So yes. they, they would take him on Monday through Fridays down to the coroner's office to clean off the tables from the bodies that had uh, been, uh, that were involved in car accidents and died from the night before to, to kind of teach them a lesson of, look, like this is the type of shit that you can cause to people out there. We're going to have you go ahead and like clean off these tables. So you see like what you shouldn't be doing anymore. But I think what sending people to solace is is more educational is more actually like more uh, interactive. It, it, It shows the people that uh, you put people through some shit and like th- this right. could be your family. So I think that's wonderful. Right. There's something right. I really, go ahead. What do you want to say? Well, I just want to say that, yes, it is very interactive, but our goal, and I, and I know, I know you understand this. Our goal is to never pile on. It's never to make somebody feel bad <laughs> about what their family, about whatever their family's been through along with their addiction. Right. It's just to open, it's to open, really open their eyes. Um, and you know, the beautiful thing is they come and they want to be of service. They Mm -hmm. say, Oh, can we help you to your car? Miss Maggie, can we carry this? Can we, you know, uh, yeah. And that's that's what it's all about. And we even have parents, which is a beautiful thing who have the ability to give them little side jobs to help them in their recovery and 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 show them, show them that they, that they were trustworthy. That uh-huh. we trusted them. It gives them a sense of purpose too. Yes, yes, and 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 they know that we have their back. That uh, you know we're walking the walk, we're talking the talk, and and we really want to see them make it. And sadly, you know, I have I have we have stories of people that did come and we we lost them. Right. Um, right. And you know, we even have a young man that came. And uh, he was here from Orange County. A lot, a lot of people come who are 
in recovery programs, but they're from out of state. But this, this particular young man was from Orange County. And he used to say, oh, um, I can't wait. I want my mom to come to this program. And, and he finished his program and he left and uh, he passed. We lost him, very young. And then um, one day after he did pass, his, his mother did come to the meeting and we gave her, we were all crying and we were hugging her and we told her how much her son used to talk about her and say, I hope that my mom comes to this meeting one day, but he never meant it in that way. He didn't mean it to be under these circumstances. We have a lot of sad, tender moments uh, that, that we have, we have turned down the lights and literally lit the candles every time we lose someone. It's a very solemn moment. I'm sure it is. There's a couple more questions I want to ask you. One is Absolutely. earlier you talked about tough love being controversial. Can you expand on that a little bit, please? Sure. So um, it can be it can be controversial only because um, you know I I have attended some nar some Naranon family groups and things like that, um, and I've learned a lot a lot of a lot of great things. Uh, and but I know that that's one of the things that they you know they they advise and and all I'm I guess maybe the controversial isn't quite the right word I wanted to use I would just say that everybody has to decide on their own if they're going to take that step because you're because you're the one that has to live with it so for somebody someone in a meeting to sit there and tell you well you need to kick them out you need to do this well that's one thing our group never does. We never tell you what you should do. Uh -huh. we, 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 we provide the tools or we, you know, we have the resources, but ultimately it's that family's decision uh -huh. because sometimes it can backfire. You know, the, the, the notion of, well, the person has to hit rock bottom. They have to hit rock bottom. Yeah. Well, now, well, nowadays, Pez, you know what rock bottom is? It's death from fentanyl. That, that is right. rock bottom. It's and so we we can't let that we can't let it get that far. We right. can't let it get that far because right. fentanyl with fentanyl you just you don't even have a chance, and right. it's in everything. You could just and, die almost immediately. There's no no bottom. Yeah. And yes. I've, I've often said, I mean, I've never really subscribed to the to the term rock bottom in the first place because if that was the case, I had hundreds of rock bottoms, and I believe every bottom has a trap door. I would, if you, you think like uh, the countless times that I went to jail or juvie and all that stuff, those should be seen as rock bottom. Why is it right. that the, I'll convince myself when I'm locked up, I'm not going to get high. I'm not going to get high. I'm not going to get high. Second I get out, I'm off to the dealer's house. Like there's no, there's that, that's exactly. a problem, you know? So, exactly. okay. So I, I like that approach. I know that one, one thing I try to watch my words when I'm talking to people, I'm also an interventionist. So like often what I say is, uh, I'm not telling you what to do. I know this is probably what I would do. Or if it was my kid, I would probably take these measures. But definitely let them know that the help is there if they're, mm -hmm. they're struggling. Um, let the kids know that they're there or that, that there's help out there. But, um, you know, everybody can do what they need to do the way they need to do it. So they don't have to uh, carry that guilt that, you know, well, I was told to, to kick him out and then I kicked him out and look what happened to him. You know? Right. And, that, and that's why we... We are in no position to tell people across the table, well, you need to kick them out right. because that could go terribly wrong. And mm -hmm. then, and then what, you know, I mean, maybe they were influenced to do that because obviously, because we told them that. Right. And then later, later they could really resent that say, right. well, you know, I listened to everybody, but I no. really didn't want to, you know? Um, well, and I just want to talk about fentanyl for a minute. Okay. Sure, so, so with fentanyl, um, as we know, it's in pretty much everything. And we have connected with a lot of families over the last you know, 18 months during COVID. Uh, uh, and each, each and every one of them, it's fentanyl every time, pretty much every time. And, this, and these are young, a lot of them are very young. Um, a lot of them didn't even have a quote, like a developed a whole full blown addiction. They, uh -huh. they they experimented. They were part, you know, they partied, uh, whatever. And so, but, you know, I, I just want to say, you know, these, so my son did black tar heroin and, you know, he, 
that was his expectation. His expectation that it was black tar heroin didn't have, you know, not, his expectation was, well, maybe it has other shit in it or whatever, you know, but yeah, nowadays, yeah. but nowadays, uh, you know, you're, you think you're taking, uh, you know, a Xanax, which, you know, these are counterfeits, they're fentapils, you know, on the street. So you, you think you're taking a Xanax or a Percocet or whatever, and you have full expectation that that's what it is. That's what it is. And you're dying. You're dying because that's, that isn't what it was. So this, so the, there's a whole movement and I, you know, and I agree with it that, you know, this is, this is not, these are not accidental overdoses. These are, these are poisonings. These are murders. People are being murdered. Okay. Mm -hmm. Because they're taking, they're unsuspecting. They don't, they didn't know it was in there. Yes. So they're taking a chance. They are taking a chance, but some of these young people don't know that fentanyl, they don't even know, they've never even heard of it. Right. right, right. Some people know and they're taking the risk. I get that. But there's a lot of people out there thinking they're taking something else and they're going down. It's in there, so it's not accidental. Makes a lot yeah, it's not accidental. It's really it, interesting it is, yeah. that because remember a couple of years ago, I introduced you to a lady who lost her son, Zach, out of Wisconsin, yes. Rhonda. I'm actually going to have her on the show. She oh, she actually just sent me a text the other day of the person that sold her son the fentanyl was convicted because in that area he was uh, – uh, he had sold it to a lot of different people. So he is being convicted for murder, for murder. And, yes. And, and, you know, while I'm sure there's people that see a different side to that, I mean, these families, they, while there's never closure, you lose a child, you lose a loved one. There's no closure. Even but, if there's some sort of justice, there's no closure. It doesn't bring your child back. But, um, I can tell you there's many families in our group that have lost someone who are now their their uh, their loved ones phones are finally being confiscated. They're being taken in and they're being looked at by, you know, by teams of uh, law enforcement who are checking what was on there. Now, right. that didn't happen. That didn't even though I had information, didn't it didn't happen. It didn't used to happen. It's starting to happen now. Um, so at least we're making some progress. But. I'm glad to hear that about uh, Rhonda. I mean, it, you know, someone needs to be held responsible for this, and um, it's it's devastating. Two more things I want you to talk about. We have a few minutes left, but I want you to just uh, shortly talk about one of your newer projects, and then sure. the rest of it talk about the um, the Narcan, how you guys are providing Narcan to people. Sure. Just tell me about. Okay. That. Sure. Um, well. And one thing I didn't touch on when I introduced myself is that I'm a certified uh, Narcan trainer. Awesome. And, and so the great thing is that, you know, when we have people come to the group who are struggling, you know, we say, well, if you're living with this person, you should be trained and you should have Narcan. And so that's just one of the ways that we can try to empower people and feel like they know a little bit more than they did when they first walked in. Um, tell, and, tell the people that don't, that may not know what Narcan is, Real quick, like what is Narcan? What does it do? What's its sure. purpose? Sure. So Narcan is an is an antagonist, an opioid antagonist drug. So it it can overdose. Um, I'm sorry, can reverse the effects of an overdose. Um, an overdose process can actually take between one to three hours to actually, um, you know, have a person pass in that way. So you actually have some time to respond. Uh, it's not it's not always immediate. However. In the case of fentanyl, it is immediate. It's often immediate, but um, um, so it can reverse an overdose, and uh, and it brings a person literally back to life and gives them a chance, another chance, because as long as there's breath, there's there's uh, life and there's hope, you know, for another day. Um, and so, uh, you know, we've trained families who saved their own loved ones, and as traumatic as that is. I mean that that's a beautiful thing, you know. It's a it's a it's a beautiful thing. Um, so uh, so one of the things through connecting uh, with uh, this wonderful family here in Cyprus, the Lace family, mm -hmm. uh, they um, they work in the music industry, and um, we've uh, gotten involved with uh, we've collaborating with some other uh, big names nonprofits and so on. And so um, if uh, if a person 
uh, would like to get uh, would like to get some Narcan. Um, we encourage them to go to tempo tempomission.org, um, and you can take a training online. And then here, if you're here in Orange County, uh, you just have you just have to contact us, and we we we'll, we have it for you for free. And um, so that is, you know, we we hope, you know, obviously, you know, with as every medication has an expiration date, so does Narcan. So it's critical that we get these uh, these out, you know, um, these kits out. We currently have uh, we don't have the nasal version right now. We have the auto injectors. And so we'd love to get those out. So anybody needs needs some here in Orange County, um, just go on that quick training and then we'll be able to get it to you. Awesome. I absolutely love that. I'm actually going to have to hit you up for that because I've got <laughs> some homes where we probably need to re-up because they are probably going to be expired soon. So good to know. Um, yes. Wow, this was probably one of the most powerful podcasts that I've had yet. Uh, you're an amazing you. woman. Thank you for all that you do for the community. Thank you for being you. All things considered, you help countless men and women who are uh, struggling through trying to get through the grievance process or, or just uh, are in the trying to figure out how to help their loved ones. So thank you for everything you do. It's been an honor and a privilege to have you on here today. I'll never forget... Um, when you asked me to come speak uh, and tell my story at a treatment center that you were working at, uh, I think you were, it was an all male facility. And yes. I just, I couldn't help but think when I was there, I wonder how much she, this reminds her of her own son and how she just wants to help and give back to probably all these other men just because they are, you know, lost on their path and, and she can be a channel, somebody that can actually help them hopefully find their path to a certain extent. Yes, I thank you for saying that. And I, um, it was, you know, it's always been my purpose is to give others hope. And um, through this support group, you know, uh, we meet a lot of wonderful people. But I just want to say briefly about the support group. We have the most beautiful group of fa families. Uh, and the whole main mission or point of it is so that they know they're not alone. So many people think that grieving is just for a short period and it's over and it's a lifetime. It's a lifetime and it's uh, it's a long, tough road. And uh, we understand each other. And so, you know, uh, it's a place where you know you're not alone. Other people can relate. And, um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's hard work, but it's very rewarding when, when you see people in the depths of their grief at the very beginning mm -hmm. and you see them reaching out a hand to the next person that's coming into the room that's newer than them, then you know, you're, you know, it gives you hope. You know, they're going to make it. They're going to make it. Thank you, Margie. Thank you, Maggie. You're welcome. You're welcome. No, thank you so much for this opportunity. It means so much. And thank you for all that you do to shed the light, spread the awareness and you do it with love and compassion. And that's what I love about you. Thank you. is you understand that there's more to it than just, you know, uh, meets the eye, you know, as an interventionist. Thank you. Have thank a lovely you. day and I'll, I'll see you again soon. Yes. Thank you so much. You too. You have a wonderful day. Take care. Thanks.